Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. The travels of Sir John Mandeville, they are really weird, but their weirdness is kind of a slow burn. Again, Mandeville, he is purportedly writing a travel guide for people who want to go from England to the Holy Land and back. And he does indeed give advice on getting from England to the Holy Land and back. And he does indeed give a pretty good description of Jerusalem and the surrounding environs. But that is just a sort of pretext for the book. I think the reason that this thing was popular is because it's essentially a fantasy bestiary. At the risk of outing myself as a giant nerd, and I think it's probably too late for that, given that I have this podcast, it kind of reminds me of a Dungeons & Dragons source book. Those Dungeons & Dragons source books are all about a description of this monster, or that place, or this treasure item, that you can drop into your Dungeons & Dragons game, and then the players can talk about it and interact with it and play with it. And sometimes those books are sort of neat because you think, wow, That is a really horrifying, or beautiful, or interesting, or inspiring, or terrible idea. And then you just sort of turn it over in your mind, and you think how you would interact with it. I think that's what The Travels of Sir John Mandeville is sort of like. It's a D&D book from the 1300s. So post-Holy Land, Mandeville sets out, and things that would look right at home in a Dungeons & Dragons monster manual start popping up. When Mandeville describes Ethiopia, or rather something he calls Ethiopia, it does not really bear much resemblance to the real place called Ethiopia that you can go to, he mentions a people that will be familiar to readers of fantasy novels, specifically C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Mandeville says, quote, There are some who have only one foot, yet they run so fast on that one foot that it is a marvel to see them. That foot is so big that it will cover in shade all the body from the sun. Unquote. Those one-legged people who use their single huge leg as a kind of sun umbrella show up in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the weirder Narnia books, also my favorite Narnia book. Uh, in it, a crew attempt to sail out from Narnia to the edge of the world. And when I say edge of the world, I mean that literally uh, Narnia is flat. And as they do this, as they get further and further from the familiar, it's like the laws of reality seem to break down. They encounter dragons, confusion, lands of darkness, people, and one-legged humans like the ones Mandeville described. Um, I double-checked on this, and it turns out that, indeed, C.S. Lewis did read Mandeville, and the parallels to it and Voyage of the Dawn Treader are pretty thematically apparent. Both of them are about going out to the blank spaces on the map. Both of them are about travel and exploration for its own sake. And both of them are about encountering the alien and grappling with it. But probably the single juiciest chapter in the whole book is just after the midpoint, just after the Holy Land. It's chapter 20, which is all about swingers, cannibals, and circumnavigating the globe. So Mandeville describes the residents of an isle called Lamori as being violent and debauched. He writes that they go about naked, lack any conventions of marriage or monogamy, they are constantly having sex with each other, and that, to you, might all sound like good clean fun and a pretty great Saturday night. But then, then Mandeville gets to the cannibalism. Mandeville says, quote, 
but they have an evil custom among them, for they will eat human flesh more gladly than any other. Nevertheless, the land is abundant in meat and fish and corn, and also gold and silver and other goods. Merchants bring children there to sell, and those people of the country buy them. Those that are plump they eat, those that are not plump they feed and fatten, and then kill and eat them, and they say it is the best and sweetest flesh in all the world." Rather abruptly, after describing cannibalistic swingers, Mandeville goes from the juicy sex and death exploitation stuff that would have Quentin Tarantino at attention to talking about how the world is round and you can sail all the way around it. He starts talking about the pole star, the view of the sky from different parts of the world, and then, quote, It can be seen from this that the world is quite round, for the parts of the firmament, which can be seen in one country, cannot be seen in another. It can be proved thus. If a man had adequate shipping and good company, and moreover his health and wanted to go and see the world, he could traverse the whole world, above and below. I prove that thus, according to what I have seen. He goes on, And had I had company and shipping, that I would have gone further. I do believe that we should have seen all the roundness of the firmament, that is to say, both the hemispheres upper and lower. For as I have told you, half the firmament is between these two stars. Mandeville claims that there is a pole star and that there is also an antipolar star. Going on, So I can say truly that a man could go all around the world, above and below, and return to his own country, provided he had his health, good company, and a ship, as I said above, and all along the way he would find men, lands, islands, cities, and towns, such as there were in those countries. For you know well that those men who live right under the Antarctic Pole are foot against foot to those who live right below the Arctic Pole. Again, he's referring to the two supposed pole stars. We have one, not the other. Just as we and those who live at our antipodes are foot against foot. It is like that in all parts. Each part of the earth and sea has its opposite, which always balances it. And understand that to my way of thinking, the land of Prester John, Emperor of India, is exactly below us. If you want to learn more about Prester John, go to episode 27 of this podcast, King of Jewels and Centaurs. But, getting back to Mandeville, For if a man were to go from Scotland or England to Jerusalem, he would be going upwards all the way. For our land is in the lowest part of the west, and the land of Prester John is in the lowest part of the east. For it is commonplace that Jerusalem is in the middle of the earth, it may be proved thus. Old maps, like the TNO map I described last episode, put Jerusalem at the center of the world. Going on. I have heard when I was young of a worthy man of our country, who went once upon a time to see the world. He passed India, and many isles beyond India, where there are more than five thousand isles, and traveled so far by land and sea, girding the globe, that he found an isle where he heard his own language being spoken. I conjecture that he had traveled so far over land and sea, circumventing the earth, that he had come to his own borders, and if he had gone a bit further, he would have come to his own district. But after he heard that marvel, he could not get transport any further, so he turned back the way he had come, and so he had a long journey. Oh man, I love that little story so much. It is so kind of like neat and narratively perfect. And I know I'm quoting a lot here, but this is, again, probably the most important part of the book. One last little thing. For just as it seems to us that those men there are under us, so it seems to them that we are under them. For if it were possible for a man to fall off the earth to the firmament, 
all the more reason for the earth and the sea, which are very heavy, to fall thither too. But that cannot happen. As God himself witnesses when he says, Have no fear of me, who have hanged the earth from nothing. Unquote. That is amazing. In a travel book that includes lots of invented stories, tall tales, weird stuff, plagiarism, what we have here is something that is mostly kind of getting at how the world actually works. And sure, Jerusalem isn't at the center of the world, or rather it is, but only insofar as all points on the surface of a sphere could be said to be in the middle of that sphere. And there's no kingdom of Prester John, and there's no, like, anti-pole star, but it's pretty spot on. And I find this whole thing amazing, not because Mandeville knows that the world is round. People have known that the world was round for ages and ages and ages. No, I think that this is one of the most interesting and also moving parts of the book because it is a call to travel and it is a call to adventure. It is Mandeville saying that if you had just enough stuff and if you had the will to do this, uh, you could go all the way around the world and start and end at your own home. And just like a blank map sort of calls people to travel, this possibility of circumnavigation, I think, is calling the reader to get out there and see the world. Now, the world John Mandeville describes is wild and crazy and fantastic and inaccurate, but it's sort of inspiring and moving nonetheless. And I will talk about the effect that that passage had next week uh, when I talk about the book's sources and legacy and interpretation. But for now, Mandeville still has some weird stuff to tell us about. Like on Malacca, he describes, yet more cannibals. There are wicked and cruel folk there too, says Mandeville, for they have no delight or pleasure in anything except slaughtering people to drink their blood. And the man who can kill the greatest number of men is the most respected and worthiest among them. There is no drink they like so much as man's blood, and they call it God. Unquote. Oh my God, that's great. And very shortly after that, just a few passages down, quote, Men and women of that isle have heads like dogs, and they are called cynocephalies. These people, despite their shape, are fully reasonable and intelligent. They worship an ox as their god. Each one of them carries an ox made of gold or silver on his brow, as a token that they love their god well. They go quite naked, except for a little cloth round their privy parts. They are big in stature and good warriors. They carry a large shield, which covers all of their body, in a long spear in their hand, and dressed in a way that go boldly against their enemies. If they capture any man in battle, they eat him." Unquote. Again, very much something like you would find out of a monster manual for Dungeons & Dragons. But maybe I'm just letting my own particular cultural preoccupations affect my reading of this thing. And there's so much more. Dwarves, hermaphroditic humans, people who have no heads and instead have faces on their chest. And the people with no heads and faces on their chest, they're called blimmies and other sources, might sound familiar to fans of Othello. When Othello is describing his travels, he sounds more than a little Mandevillian. Importance in my travels history, where the entries vast and deserts idle, rough quarries, rocks, and hills, whose heads touch heaven, it was my hint to speak, and such was the process, and of the cannibals that each other eat, the anthropophagi, and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders, this to hear would Desdemona seriously incline. 
And he's talking there about how impressive and wild and all his travels were, and how Desdemona, his wife, just loved hearing about all of these dangerous and foreign lands. And that's a little bit of Mandeville echoing in Shakespeare. From there, Mandeville launches into a description of an imagined East, filled with all manner of wealth. He'll get to the kingdom of Prester John later, but he also talks about the king of Java, who supposedly owns 14,000 elephants, and they're all equipped with castles on their backs, so they can do sort of mobile siege combat, which is a striking visual. But a lot of the end of the travels is dominated by Mandeville's description of Cathay and the Great Khan. Of this imagined country, based on real-life China, Mandeville says, quote, They surpass all other nations in cleverness for good or ill, and they know it themselves. Therefore, they say that they see with two eyes, and Christian men with one. And of the great Khan, Mandeville says, Not even Prester John, emperor of greater and lesser India, nor the sultan of Babylon, nor the emperor of Persia, nor anyone else can be compared to him. Truly it is a great pity he is not a Christian. Nevertheless, he will gladly hear men speak of God. For in his land no man is forbidden to believe, in whatever religion it pleases him to believe. And if some men perhaps will not believe me about what I have said, and say it is all fable, I do not really care. There are, every so often in the travels, these interjections where the author, who again, just for the sake of brevity, I'm calling Mandeville, uh, says that people might think this isn't real or that he's making it up. And he says, it's totally real, guys. And here he says, I don't care. I love that. There's far too much of Mandeville's description of the Khan to fit here, but he goes on about how the Khan and his people were supposedly descended from one of the sons of Noah, how the first Khan came to power after the divine guidance of a white knight, how the Khan was guided by a divinely appointed bird, and how Cathay is supposedly the richest, most impressive, and most advanced place on earth. And a modern reader might find this sort of curious, since when we think Khan, we generally imagine horse-mounted archers with fur hats who are really, really good at taking territory and killing people. But by this point, the Yuan dynasty, which was a Mongolian royal family, uh, they had become pretty settled in China, and the Mongolian rulers had become pretty well signified. So Mandeville's description here does have kind of sort of a ring of truth, as Yuan China was fairly advanced. And we are talking more about, like, later period Yuan emperors, and less so about Genghis Khan, you know, and his immediate successors. And it came up in the passage I just read you, but Mandeville does not portray this advanced foreign land as at all Christian. He does claim there are Christians in the East, such as in the kingdom of Prester John, but it's kind of curious that Mandeville doesn't claim that Cathay is yet another secret Christian kingdom. Instead, he plays up the supposed regard that the Khan has for Christians and Christianity, and implies that the residents of Cathay would make for fine Christians if they were to convert. But I'll be talking about Mandeville's attitude toward foreignness and to the other, and admiration and contempt for the other, um, and other interpretations of his work next week. After Cathay, Mandeville continues with a litany of exotic places, such as a land of pure darkness with strange sounds emanating from it. And again, readers of C.S. Lewis, that's also in The Voyage to Dawn Treader. He talks about plants whose fruit, when opened up, yield small animals. That sounds really, really counter to everything we know about biology, and also horrifying. He talks about centaurs, griffins. 
He gets into a description of the kingdom of Prester John, which echoes a lot of the same themes that I talked about in the Prester John episode, though Mandeville also adds that Prester John and the Khan, they're always allied through some kind of marital alliance. Toward the end, one of the most notable locations in the book is the Vale Perilous, a valley supposedly filled with riches and treasure, but also haunted by demons. Mandeville, of course, claims to have gone through the Vale Perilous and to have prayed, taken appropriate religious measures before venturing into a domain of infernal creatures, and his description of the Vale is haunting. He says, quote, And my companions and I went through the valley, and saw many marvelous things, and gold and silver and precious stones and many other jewels on each side of us, so it seemed to us. But whether it really was as it seemed, or was merely illusion, I do not know. But because of the fear we were in, and also so as not to hinder our devotion, we would touch nothing we saw, for we were more devout than we ever were before or after because of the fear we had on account of devils appearing to us in different guises, and of the multitudes of dead men's bodies that lay in our path. For if two kings with their armies had fought together, and the greater part of both sides had been slain, there would not have been a greater number of dead bodies than we saw. And when I saw so many bodies lying there, I was very astonished that they were so healthy and without corruption, as fresh as if they had been newly dead. But I dare not affirm that they were all true bodies that I saw in that valley. I believe that devils made so many bodies appear so as to frighten us. For it is not likely that so great a multitude of folk should have really been dead there so freshly that there was no smell or corruption. Many of those bodies I saw seemed to be wearing the clothing of Christian men. But I well believe that they came there from covetousness of the gold and other jewels in that valley or because false hearts cannot stand the great fear and dread they had on account of the horrible sights they saw. And I assure you that we were often struck to the earth by great terrible blast of wind, thunder, and tempest. But through the grace of Almighty God, we passed safe and sound. Mandeville also writes that he had 14 people with him in his traveling party before venturing to the Vale, but only nine made it out alive. Because of course you got to lose somebody. Hey, if you go through the dangerous part and nobody dies, then it's a boring movie. And that is probably one of the most narratively satisfying parts of the book. There are, of course, more marvels and horrors. Giants, the basilisk, more reference to dragons. But Mandeville ends with probably the greatest wonder of all. He ends with the one land, the one place out of reach that in all of his travels, neither him nor anyone else could reach. That's Eden, the earthly paradise. After seeing so much, after encountering so many things, after enduring so many dangers, Mandeville says this of the place he cannot go. Quote, you should realize that no living man can go to paradise. By land, no man can go thither, because of the wild beasts in the wilderness, and because of the hills and rocks, which no one can cross, and also because of the many dark places that are there. No one can go there by water either, for those rivers flow with so strong a current, with such a rush and such waves, that no boat can sail against them. There is also such a great noise of waters, that one man cannot hear another, shout he never so loudly. Many great lords have tried at different times to travel by those rivers to paradise, but they could not prosper in their journeys. 
Some of them died through exhaustion from rowing and excessive labor. Some went blind and deaf through the noise of the waters, and some were drowned by the violence of the waves. And so no man, as I said, can get there except through the special grace of God. And so of that place, I can tell you no more. There's a bit more after that, but that right there is a pretty excellent mic drop for Sir John Mandeville. So this is all weird and fun and monster manual-like, but one thing I haven't talked about yet is, who was this guy? Who was John Mandeville? Where did the book come from? How was it received? What are the ideas present in this book? How does John Mandeville think about the foreign, the other? How does he imagine people of other countries than him? How does he imagine people of other religions? What are the ideas that have been drawn out of this book? What influences did it have? What, broadly speaking, is its deal? All of exactly that next week on Interesting Times. This podcast is funded by you. Yes, you. You listening. Hi. This is a listener-supported podcast. To support the podcast, go to interestingtimespodcast.com, sign up for a monthly contribution on Patreon. That would be beautiful of you. Uh, Also go to iTunes. Give us a rating and review. I love hearing what you think, and I also love hearing what you think on social media, like Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimes with Joe Streckert, and Twitter, I am at Joe Streckert. I'm also on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. Next week, we're back with our third and final episode on the travels of Sir John Mandeville. Thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) 